Welcome to Make Your Move, the podcast designed to help you get on the property ladder and then figure out what the hell you're doing once you're on there. From deposits to mortgages, surveys to moving day, we can help. Make Your Move is brought to you by Really Moving, the price comparison site for moving home services. Let's get into our episode. Today we're talking to two legal experts, Mark Heppenstall and Claire Yarrow from Freed Solicitors, to discuss what happens when you're buying or selling due to divorce, or anything to be aware of when you are buying a home that's being sold in the middle of a divorce. So welcome to the podcast. Do you want to tell us a little something about yourselves and your backgrounds to start? Thank you for having us. <laughs> yeah, I'll start. My name's Claire Yarrow. Um, I'm a senior associate in uh, the Sheffield office of Freets. I work primarily in residential property. I have been, uh, well, I am a chartered legal executive and I have been for the last 10 years, but I have worked in residential property for at least 16 years. So quite a long time, probably longer than I care to think about, to be honest. But yes, I do have a lot of experience in residential conveyancing. Hi, I'm Mark Heppenstall. I'm a, a family lawyer and director in our matrimonial team. Uh, I uh, look after our Yorkshire offices and primarily cover uh, Leeds and uh, Sheffield, although our team represents clients uh, sort of up and down the uh, country in relation to uh, all sorts of matrimonial disputes that flow from uh, divorce and uh, separation. Thank you. So yeah, we've got both sides of it here, which is brilliant. So we can kind of cover quite a big range. So the reason we wanted to do an episode on this is because it's one of the main reasons people sell a home when they may not have been intending to originally. So we talk about the three D's, death, debt and divorce, which obviously isn't particularly very nice, but it is one of the main reasons people are forced to sell a home when they might not otherwise. And yeah, we just wanted to help people navigate that process. I think there's a lot of people discuss, you know, can they make me leave my house or do we have to sell it? What happens if you don't sell it? All that kind of stuff. So for anyone who's in the middle of a separation or divorce um, and trying to figure out what to do about the family home, where would they start? Maybe I'm better to, to, to sort of on my side pick up in the first instance. When, when people are in the process of separation following the breakdown of a marriage. And, and this is very specific to breakdown of a marriage. It's different if we're talking about people that are cohabiting but not married. The, the court only has jurisdiction to make an order to sell a family home in the event of agreement between the parties that's then endorsed by a judge or a final determination of a, of a dispute. So the long and the short of it is people are free to leave a property at any time, but in terms of actually selling a property, that can only happen with either consent between the parties or on a final order from, from a judge. And so that's that's the sort of situation that, that, that parties have to navigate their way through in terms of trying to get there. And of course, the considerations that might come into play in that process will vary. And of course, there's, there's a lot to, to, to weigh up in assessing how that should be managed and, and whether parties want to go down the route of, is does one want to retain it? And are we looking at a transfer of title from joint names into somebody's sole name. Is there a dispute about that because they both want to retain it, but only one of them can do so? Or is there a dispute because one wants to sell and, and there might not be alignment there? So does that help, Andy, in terms of the initial uh, sort of query on it? Yeah, I think, I think you know, there's a lot of conversation around, yeah, what can someone make me do? But also yeah. on a practical level, if you are separating a partner, you probably both don't want to live there. <laughs> you know you yeah. need to do something don't you 
Yeah, quite right. And you, you, you know, we do we do have arrangements where sometimes people will try to um, trundle on with shared occupation of of a family home that can become intolerable, and the sort of longevity of those arrangements tends to have a fairly limited lifespan post separation. The situations though where, I mean the big question is if the property needs to be sold when does it happen? And what a court might look at is is it appropriate that an order for sale is made immediately or is it appropriate that the order for sale is deferred and if it's going to be deferred what are the trigger events for a future sale? So again those are sort of relevant considerations that we, we might be guiding clients through when we're acting in, in these sorts of situations. A lot of that comes down to affordability and linked to that, if there's gonna be if there's gonna be a retention of the property by one of the parties, then what do we do with the mortgage? Um, the person that's not retaining the property interests will have a reasonable expectation that they need to be released from the mortgage covenants. Uh, so there can be a question around uh, can we get the consent of the lender to that? If we do get the lender's consent, then what does that mean? Would they be charging early repayment charges? Would there be other redemption costs? And that tends to vary in my experience. Different lenders tend to have different policies and parties would need to check terms and conditions of the mortgage. They might, and often it is the case that they need to speak to the mortgage lender about that as well. But again, just gives you a flavour for sort of some of the issues and invariably in these situations tends to, you know, every case will sort of turn on its on its own facts really. But if I may add from a conveyancing point of view, it's more typical um, for a, a separating or divorcing party to uh, enter into a transfer of equity. So it's usually quite common to see one party want to stay in the family home. And as Mark correctly says, if there's a mortgage, which invariably there is, it will need the mortgage lender's consent um, before they can do that. Um, and understandably, the exiting party isn't going to want to be obliged to fulfil any mortgage obligations and, and covenants once once they've relinquished basically or legal and equitable interest in the home. So everybody usually is on the same page in getting this through. That, in my experience, rather than a, a, an order for sale, uh, is, is tends to be typically the route that, that most separating couples will, will go down. And is it something that people can... I mean, can you can people afford to take on a mortgage? You know, as as a single you know as a single person with a mortgage on a house compared to being a couple who got approved for a mortgage. I don't. I think because we see so few people buy houses by themselves now, we kind of for us that's kind of seems shocking. But I suppose maybe if they've paid a big chunk of the mortgage off, if they've been together a long time, maybe it seems more reasonable. Or I just yeah, it seems it seems mad to me that someone could have you know how many how many times can someone actually afford to take on that mortgage by themselves? Of course. Of course, and I think, and, and and given the current climate, obviously interest rates uh, are probably a lot bit the highest that they've been for a while. I don't see the instances where people haven't uh, reached affordability criteria. The the only time I ever fulfil a transfer is when people have. So they've spoken to the lender. They they have said yes. You know the mortgage will just be in my name. Often that will require a remortgage. So they may have to borrow additional money. Sometimes uh, within the, uh, the the financial order on the on the divorce um, is a requirement that the exiting party is given a lump sum 
a consideration. So that sometimes has to be factored in with the remortgage. It does all depend. Each individual case has its own unique set of circumstances. Again, like you say, depending on the equity in the house, the affordability, the, the mortgage debt, like you say, they may have paid a huge chunk off the mortgage uh, in, in better times. And therefore, the, the loan to value may be that much better, which which affords them the ability to, to get a mortgage uh, or a remortgage quite easily. But ev- every every circumstance has its own set of um, unique criteria. No, no one case is ever the same, typically, although it follows a very um, usual path uh, of how these things are transacted. Everybody's case will be different. The really interesting thing about that point is um, Claire mentioned, of course, from her perspective, given the position that she sits in when you're when, when you're dealing with these things, Claire, you will only see cases where people can secure consent from the lender. Exactly. On my side, it's 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 the converse. And of course, I will see those situations where that is a stretch. And for many people, it is. And of course, one of the things that a court has to look at on how to divide assets in a case generally is the standard of living that parties enjoy during the marriage and it, and, and it will benchmark its assessment of what a fair division of the assets looks like against the standard of living that they enjoy during the marriage. Plainly though, when you're stretching money in a pot across two households instead of one, it doesn't get people as far and that does introduce challenges in terms of what's achievable and often the only way that a court can deal with that is by making orders for sale on the assumption that it will be necessary for both parties to downsize. And so with divorce often comes the necessity for people to cut to the cloth in order to to manage with equity that that has to be stretched further than it would have been before. And I just echo all the points that, that, that you've already made, Claire, in terms of you know, the environment in which parties now have to navigate through this process is not as sympathetic as it once was, given the constraints and pressure of increased interest rates and all the rest of it, even if there are soundings of, of some coolings off in, in, in that regard. So that's that's perhaps my perspective on, on that. Angle. Oh, you say it so much better than I did, Mark. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Yeah, I, on the obviously we were talking about different cases being different, but how much do you see? Obviously, a lot of couples will have children, maybe one or more children. How much of an impact does that have on the decision to like sell or stay or transfer to one member of the marriage? So, so under the, the, the court, when it's assessing what a fair outcome looks like, has to have regard to the interests of children, and children will be the courts first consideration, uh, but not only consideration. A judge will typically want to see both parents able to meet their housing needs. But what does it mean in practical terms? Well, it might mean that a judge is more sympathetic to um, what we call a deferred order for sale. So, for example, to provide stability for children of the family, it may mean that a judge is more willing to consider one of the parents retaining the family home and for a period of time so that there can be a less disruptive transition towards independence. And that's particularly so if the evidence suggests that that parent will struggle to meet the housing needs if they are required to sell. What will a judge want to do? It might want to ensure that there's limited disruption in terms of the children's educational arrangements. So they'd want to be satisfied that parents can still live 
in close proximity to where they go to school, to their sort of where their friends live, where their family are, the environment in which they're accustomed, maybe in an area that's proximate to activities that they attend on an extracurricular basis. Those sorts of things will come into play. And when I deal with deferred orders for sale, I tend to see that we might be looking at anything from two to three years at the lower end of the scale up to maybe conclusion of GCSEs or their levels to give that breathing space. And really, the, the duration of that deferral can be very short in some cases. It could be very long in, in others. That's so interesting. I was just thinking, because, yeah, that does make sense. It's very sort of people-centred, you know, thinking about the children, thinking about, you know, if it is a parent who's stayed at home with their kids, you know, getting them back into work during that time and all that kind of stuff as well. How much of it depends on the sort of goodwill of your ex-partner like how I mean can you if you've had this deal made and then that number of years passes and nothing happens what what happens then can the law sort of be enforced to make them sell yeah I, I mean so really what we're talking about there I think is there are trigger events that are identified in the court order um, one of those trigger events is crystallised. So let's take, for example, the situation where there's an order for sale upon the youngest child attaining the age of 16. They get to 16, and then the party that's in occupation of the family home doesn't sell. They just they just don't comply. They don't cooperate with the state agents to list the property. Um, they don't accommodate viewings, or they do the bare minimum so as to frustrate efforts by the non-occupying spouse to implement the terms of the order. What do we do in that situation? It would be incumbent on the person that feels that the order's not been complied with to make an application back to court, ultimately, to enforce the order. And so when clients come to see me about issues like that, and they do from time to time, we talk about like a ladder of interventions. You know, we'd start by writing to the other person, explaining that the relevant qualifying condition has now been met, and therefore... We'll, we'll talk about what needs to happen. We will map out the steps to achieve that and we'll allow a period of time for that to happen so that any non-compliance with the order can be corrected. And we do that not just to have dialogue with the non-compliant party about it, but in understanding that, that correspondence would eventually be seen by a judge if we do have to enforce. So we all of these exchanges are done with the intention of a judge seeing it if we need to enforce. And that ultimately is the route that we sometimes have to go down. And judges can, for example, and Claire may have, I don't know if you'll have seen this in practice, but they can make orders dispensing with the need for a party to, to sign transfer documents, for example. Sometimes I've had judges sign TR1s in place of the parties, sign um, letters of authority um, in terms of business to engage estate agents on behalf of a non-compliant party and so on, just so we can keep things moving and get it over the line. But the real incentive that you have, or, or stick, depending on how you look at it, in those situations, is that if somebody ultimately doesn't cooperate with what they've been ordered to do, then in those scenarios, we might be saying to the court that there should be an adverse costs order that's been made against the non-complying party, which will not always, but often be a focus to, to perhaps correct any 
any non-compliance or misbehaviour. Just just for my part on that, I thankfully have never seen uh, any any sale or transfer where the, the, the judge or the court has had to intervene uh, because of a um, non-compliant party. So I said, I suppose out, out of 16 years, that's quite a good thing. So uh, I think that goes to show, certainly for my part, obviously that won't be for Mark. He will have seen um, a lot more of this. But generally the cases that come past me, it, it, the, usually the parties are all on the same page, very compliant, want to want to move and work together within reason. Obviously some, you know, m- many people aren't speaking to one another, but um, otherwise the, the solicitors will, will do what they have to do to, to get everybody moving. And generally it works quite cooperatively. Um, so uh, it's, I think it's it's probably very rare. Like I say, I haven't come across a case where that has ever happened, although I'm sure it does. I think for the most part, it's good that people are sort of cooperative and uh, will will want to move or work together to move, yeah. Perhaps on the flip side, do you see many instances where the partner perhaps won't let them sell or might intervene or try and sabotage the sale? And if you do, what do you what do you do about that? So sometimes where where do I see dispute typically? There can be disagreement about the price at which a property is marketed for sale. So one party might think it should be listed at a higher uh, sale price, another might favour a lower sale price. That might be because one party wants a quick sale so that they can move on. And the other side, the converse of that is that one might be holding out to secure as much as possible. So so that could be an area where there's dispute. Linked to that, the price that a party accepts for, for the, the so the, there's the list price and then there's the sale price. We sometimes see dispute about um, if offers are made, one party wants to accept, but the other party wants to hold out longer for the same for the same reason. Effectively, what do we do in that situation? I think there are two primary ways that we resolve that. Firstly, we might look to instructing a RICS qualified surveyor to provide a written opinion, a red book value, and their determination on list and sale price would be binding. Alternatively, we might make an application to the court for a judge to determine it, although the judge would probably want to look at sensible evidence to inform the basis on which they make that determination. And again, a RICS qualified surveyor is is a very good route to doing that in a in, in, in a manner that would be recognised by most courts. I think it's not the only way of doing it, though. So that can sometimes be a point of, of friction. And sometimes it's just genuine difficulty in keeping everything together given how how stretched parties finances are and that really goes back to Andy's point I think the the the, the challenge in uh, managing mortgage payments especially if one spouse has moved out and set up home elsewhere can be difficult and again in situations like that we'll often encourage if parties are struggling for them to go and have dialogue with the lender maybe see if they'll agree to a mortgage payment holiday or even going on to an interest only uh, repayment for a period of time and that can sometimes help to alleviate those sorts of pressure points in the shorter term uh, which can can sometimes be a concern for parties. And again, Lisa, just going back to your point around what do we do if one party is trying to sort of sabotage things and how do we see that play out in practice? One of the things we sometimes see, sadly, on separation is that one of the parties, whatever the proportions were in which they used to pay the mortgage, will just stop doing that. And of course, what does that risk? Well, it risks arrears accruing. It risks damage to both parties' credit ratings where as far as I know, they're almost always in these situations invariably jointly and severally liable for the mortgage 
repayment um, and ultimately it could result in the lender trying to bring proceedings against against the party so it can have really damaging consequences in the short term but then also in the longer term in terms of the if if, if i can use the phrase in this context the innocent parties that isn't in, in default or hasn't sort of usurped the status quo in, in even in their ability to go on and remortgage it, it can be compromised so um, what do we do there to, to correct that? We might need to make more urgent applications to the court for interim maintenance or alternatively, and uh, under um, there's a law called the Family Law Act, and under the Family Law Act, we can obtain directions connected with what, what we call an occupation order for one of the spouses to pay the mortgage instalment against the family home. Sometimes that can be an often overlooked tool in the toolkit, if you like, that can correct that sort of, of misbehaviour as well. Yeah, it's quite scary, actually, when you start to think about how intertwined, you know, your finances are with someone and how much power you kind of have on each other when you're in a sort of negative space. It's quite a scary, you know, I suppose that's why a lot of people try to stay quite friendly about everything or, or as much as they can, because um, you are very much at each other's um, sort of mercy to an extent. So we were interested, I'm sure there's, I mean, we always think about things in a very sort of typical way of two people have come together, they've got married, they've bought a house, they've both put in 50%, they've both put in the same amount on the deposit, and then they both pay the same amount of the mortgage. And that's a nice easy split. And that makes sense. But I'm assuming realistically, there's lots of situations where one party bought the house, and then the other person moved in, or one party paid more in the deposit, or one paid for the mortgage, but the other paid for bills. Do those things impact how it's split when they're sold? Are there any situations where someone might be married, but not have any interest in their own property at all? So the short answer to that, I think, is in the context of marriage, and the breakdown of the marriage, the starting point is, is equality. And the court will generally depart from equality if it's necessary to meet needs. Um, and, and what that means is that, um, particularly in the context of longer marriages, the contributions that each party makes on the purchase of a house is likely to have very limited weight in terms of informing a judge or a court in how the equity in that property would be divided on separation on on divorce so generally speaking you, you know i will often have clients say to me but i received an inheritance and i put x amount in on purchase and my spouse didn't put anything in and therefore that should be ring fenced but the reality is if that money is pooled with matrimonial resources then it forms part of what we call the sharing exercise in in the vast majority of of cases, and 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 yeah, it would have limited relevance really, which can be a difficult thing for parties to get their heads around. And if that is a concern for people, then they might want to think about a nuptial agreement, and it would need to be, in my view, a nuptial agreement because a declaration of trust in itself would and could be overridden by laws on marriage in this country. I was just, I've got, <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth there, Mark. I was just going to say, typically, uh, if if a couple is buying a property or there is a, a transfer uh, of equity for um, a party, say a person owned a property and wanted to add his or her new partner onto it, depending how each party comes into the arrangement, we would 
usually recommend uh, a deed of trust or a declaration of trust just to ring fence any particular uh, financial arrangements that each party may, may bring to the table, as it were. So particularly if one party has contributed more in by way of deposit, or they will be taking on the, the majority, if not all of the, the, the mortgage payments. Equally, if a gift has been made from a family member, that they may want to see that that is ring fenced in the event of a dissolution of the relationship, which we, we do say time after time, it is totally unromantic. Nobody who is buying a house together or committing to, to you know this relationship together wants to think about uh, an eventual split but it does happen and so it's it's worth being savvy to that and and considering what what people are bringing to the table in terms of what what they want to protect should it come come to the wire really my view on it is if people are cohabiting but not married then a declaration of trust is a really powerful tool if people are married then a declaration of trust may be one of the factors that's considered, but it would be more limited weight, really, is is, is my view. And if, if parties wanted sort of trust and confidence that the planning work was going to achieve the protection that they're doing it for, then in the context of married couples, the safest way to achieve that is with a nuptial agreement. And that would be far more persuasive than a, a declaration of trust in that instance. Obviously, after you've, if, assuming it's all amicable and they've sold the house and it's split half, do you see often that people can then afford to buy them as separate couples after that? Is is it enough from selling their home or is it often they often can't afford to buy based on that? Is there often the resources there to then buy another house or would they often go into renting after that? More, more so than you might think. Yes. Um it's 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 common. I've seen quite a few cases where let's just let's just pick on the man, uh, for instance. He may he may decide to buy with his new partner or buy with on his own, uh, but obviously won't be able to complete the chain until either the sale or the transfer of equity on on his current home um, is completed. And, and for stamp duty purposes, that generally is a big overriding factor as well. So yes, it does happen. We we spoke to the property expert, Kate Faulkner. Um, a couple of months ago on one of our previous episodes about what can put people off or what should put people off potentially when buying. And one of the points she made was about if the previous occupants are in the midst of a divorce, because oftentimes you don't know the sort of timeline of when you're going to be able to get that property because of the divorce process and it's unique for everyone. Would you say that that's true? Would you agree with that? Or should it be a complete write-off for people when they're buying a home? Just what are your thoughts on that? I, I don't think it should be a write-off. Um, I think every case should be taken on its own merit. What will be a nightmare transaction for one couple may be the most simple walk-in-the-park transaction for the next. And it doesn't always sort of start and finish with perhaps the couple who are divorcing and so, or separating and selling their home. The, the chain is a complex beast. And depending how many people are on the chain can bring with it a whole host of, of issues. Uh, and a chain will only only ever go as the as fast as the slowest person in it. So if that just happens to be the the, the couple who are uh, splitting up um, and they are each buying their own property, then potentially yes. Although I think if the divorce, I think I'm probably right in saying this, Mark. If the financial order and everything is in place and they've they've sold the house, then it really would just be a straightforward, or I'm saying a straightforward, a sale in the usual sense. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. But if I can just add to that briefly, when people are getting divorced and a property is sold as a result of that, in the vast majority of circumstances, it will only be sold 
going back to what we discussed earlier, when there's a financial order that's made by the court, either due to agreement between the parties or because it's got to a final hearing and a judge has directed it on a determination. So generally, by that stage, there's a crystallised position in terms of what's going to happen. There's a roadmap that sets out how it's going to happen. And there's clarity about any points of dispute where their interests might not have been aligned before. So I agree with Claire, there's all sorts of reasons. This is far more your area than mine. Why a chain might be interrupted, but, but divorce generally isn't, isn't, in my experience, the drag on that too often, although you do see it occasionally. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You do see it. And I would say, actually, it's more in the transfer of equity positions where you will find one party will intentionally or otherwise delay things. Um, So it, it... it, it, it will always it will always come good, but then there's nothing to say that a person selling a property at the beginning is like, well, there should be no hold up, and then personal circumstances will come into play halfway through. Financial arrangements may change, so there's never there's never any sort of you can never really predict at the start how these things are going to go. They are yeah, you have to take it all on face value and just work with what you have when you do have it, and things can change in a day. It literally can be life changing in the space of a few hours. So I would say not necessarily move away from the couple that are selling a house through divorce. I would say that you've as much chance as getting that through quickly as you would any other arrangement. So I I don't think that would be a deterrent. That's good. Yeah, I think we have that. I mean, I think people say it with probate as well, but it's also such a different thing. Like, you know, for some people that probate wait can feel forever. But actually, if you're in a position where it's your first home and you're, you, you can afford to wait, then that's fine. You know, like, like you say, it's different, different sort of situations for everyone. Horses for courses and every every case is unique. And, and if anything, I would say a probate sale would, would necessarily take longer because you have no control over the probate registry and how quickly, whether it's a taxable estate, non-taxable estate, how quickly it will move through. Whereas I suppose at least with, with a, a couple that are splitting up, they're here, they're, they're available. There's, there's some sort of, to, for want of a better word, some pressure that you can apply on them to, to move quickly. Whereas with a yeah, the probate registry, you just wouldn't have that. They will move as quickly as they want to move. And that's that's basically it. So if anything, I would say that buying a, buying a property from probate potentially could take longer, but not the subject of today. So. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that one next time. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I just had a thought um, moving to a different point, but I just, I wondered how com, how common, if often, is it that a couple continues to con- just keep the house, keep paying for it, keep both paying the mortgage, but one of them moves out and is also living somewhere else? Is that something that happens a lot, or is that not really doable for a lot of people? It's a fe- yeah, it is a feature in some of my cases. Typically, the the scenario where we might see that is there's a clear imbalance in terms of parties' financial resources. So the person that's in the more dominant financial position will continue to provide support for the family home as well as setting up in 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 their sort of new environment, if if you like. I, what I'd say is that those sorts of arrangements tend to have more limited longevity, and particularly in the sort of landscape of society today. You know, I, I reflect on, on, on practice nowadays. And, you know, when I started out in practice 10 years ago, courts up and down the country were more accustomed to making uh, maintenance orders for longer periods of time. And maintenance orders would have supported those sorts of arrangements for, for longer. At these days, the, the, the trend over the last sort of five or 10 years 
has been towards people transitioning to independence and maintenance orders sort of happening for shorter periods of, of time. So it, that tends to be less sympathetic to those sorts of arrangements that you've mentioned. Mark, just out, and this is purely out of my own interest, how, how did things work during COVID where nobody could essentially move out of a home even if they wanted to? How, how did you find things impacted then? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in reality, if, if, if where things became so intolerable at home that, that you know, people would vote with the feet and, and, and that <laughs> happened during the pandemic as much as at any other time. But of course, as with sort of the market generally, there was disruption. And I think I think if perhaps more sort of caution on the part of sellers early on in terms of what does it mean in the market, what does it mean in terms of what we'll achieve and all the rest of it. And of course, as, as time went on and things settled in, you know, we all saw that the opposite was true, wasn't it? And there's a bit of a, a mini boom in, in the market. So. Oh, yeah, the, the snap duty holiday. Yeah, really good. Re, re, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever, ever seen it yeah. as busy as that. Yeah. Yeah, I think we got to the point where we just felt bad sending any business to conveyances at that point. Like, everyone is exhausted. Please stop buying houses. <laughs> um, I think I think it really was. And I think when they when they, they spoke about extending it till the end of that same year in September, and it was like, oh, goodness, no. Please let us have a holiday. <laughs> How are we going to do this again? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I suppose anything with a knife edge ending like that is just a nightmare, um, especially as obviously buying a property, you know, it can go on. It's, you know, there's, it's like you say, there's so many moving parts. Um, and I guess that's kind of where both sort of divorce and, and the home buying world kind of cross over in that there is so much dependence on other people being motivated to get it over the line and, and if someone's not on board or they're dragging their feet it can really have a have an impact on everyone yeah it, it, it really can yeah yeah so I guess just to summarize from both of you I guess probably for Mark it would be more do you have any advice for anyone who is in that position now where they are about to you know either sell or transfer equity due to divorce and then for Claire it would probably be more advice for people who are potentially buying in that process although if you have anything about shared equity you know the transfer that's also helpful so just yes any any tips appreciated um I I would say and and I'm sure Mark w- would agree with this and probably be the the front runner on this anyway but um certainly when um a transfer or a sale comes to me the the vast majority of the sort of wrangling if you like has already been done so it it always helps uh, certainly in terms of time scales because there's usually always a, a a deadline on on getting either a sale or a transfer through is to make sure any remortgage uh, is in place or lender's consent is in place and that people uh, realistically will be able to achieve the deadlines that have been set. So going on holiday, extended periods of leave where they won't be in the country or not contactable. I know that sounds ridiculous, but you do have people that will up sticks and go on safari for three weeks or whatever. And, you know, there's, there's, it's it's things like that. I suppose it's having your ducks in a row, for want of a better description, to make sure that things can just run as smoothly as possible by the time a conveyancer comes into play. Probably as well, it's worth mentioning, although most couples will do this anyway, but if there is one couple or one 
one part of the couple rather that went through the buying process more predominantly than the other who took control of the the, the purchasing you know was was ma- the main contact they may be the ones that that know the ins and outs of the property whereas the other party who maybe took a back seat doesn't so if they're for instance going to be the party that retains the family home or the the, the marital home they may want to have some sort of conveyances report on basically what what their rights are what what they can do what they can't do which which sounds ridiculous I know but you will be surprised how many people who have owned a property for five years or whatever forget what was told to them at the start of the transaction and and could be very important as to how they continue to use and occupy the property so it's probably always worth as well investing if you haven't done already on perhaps a bit of a conveyances title report but again that yeah I, I would just reiterate I think just forward planning is always a very very good tool I think to make sure everything goes quite smoothly. The sentiment on my side would be absolutely exactly the, the same forward planning and sort of get, getting your ducks in a, a row. And what does that mean from, from the perspective of, you know, where I find clients and the, the stage they're at? Well, it, I think it means think about what's realistic and what's attainable moving forward if there is a sale of property. So go off and look at property particulars for alternatives. And then um, in terms of benchmarking that against affordability, go off and get borrowing capacity information. So speak to a mortgage broker, get financial advice, look at your maximum borrowing capacity over a particular term, look at what that translates to in terms of current monthly instalment, look at what that will require in terms of a a, a deposit and where that gets you to on LTV, your your loan to value, because that's going to inform how much equity you need from the sale proceeds of the family home. And that might be relevant to a court assessment of, whether there should be a departure in in one person's favour or or not. So that's a really important part of of the jigsaw puzzle. And then thinking about in terms of, you know, if you are going to market for sale, which estate agents do you want to use? What are you listing it at? What sale price are you going to accept? Making sure that's all clearly documented so that there isn't dispute about it later on and so forth. So that when we come to implementing these steps, they're clearly mapped out and everybody knows what they're doing. And the clearer that we can be in this sort of situation, the less of a risk there is that people will fall out or take different interpretations of what was intended. That's brilliant. Yeah, I think it aligns with kind of what we say every every time we do one of these podcasts, which is about keeping your paperwork, you know, keeping an eye on what's next in the process, making sure you've got everything you need because there's so much more paperwork and a lot of it isn't digital yet anyway. So sort of keeping track of everything that you've you've done. Yeah, that sort of fits with, I think, even if you're just buying and it's completely straightforward, I think it's it's um, really good to, to advise. That was all from me, Jez or Lisa. Do you have anything else you wanted to ask? Don't think so. Yeah. No? Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you both so much. So I thought that was so interesting. And I definitely learned a lot about divorce and perhaps that we don't have to be as worried if, if if the seller tells you they're getting divorced and that's why they're selling. It's less of a concern. So what do you guys think? Um, my takeaway, I think, is from this that when buying a home, if you do ask the estate agent the reason for the sale, and it is a divorce. Sometimes it can take a little bit longer, sometimes not. And it shouldn't be a reason for you to completely shut down the idea of buying that home, especially depending on your situation. For me, I would be a first-time buyer, so waiting wouldn't be a big drama. But if you're someone who's in more of a rush, potentially you'd have to consider it more. But divorce does not always equal an extended waiting period between finding the house and actually living in it. So 
That's good to hear. Um, Jez, how about you? No, my main takeaway is I think a really positive thing that kids in a divorce will be the top priority, which you'd, you'd hope. But, you know, sometimes you think maybe maybe kids aren't considered, but like selling or transferring or whatever decision is made will be based around what the kid needs. And if they need to stay in that family home or at least stay till they're 16 and old enough to understand, then it will be declared by the courts. So I think that's that's positive to know that it's what's in the best interest of a child because they don't really have an input really in the rest of it. But the courts will be looking out for them, which is positive for anyone worried about their kids going through divorce yeah i think there were some really positive takeaways there so yeah i think it's always seemed a bit like with divorce and separation if it's not amicable and you need to make a decision around your home it's a bit of a no man's land like one of them can start sabotaging the viewings or they cannot provide the paperwork or but um as mark pointed out you know there are stages to each of that and each time you go through a stage you're collecting proof that they're sort of standing in the way until they can be forced to to make that happen so you have still got power if you're desperate to sell your house and move on and start this new life you're not completely at the whims of another person but yeah it also that idea of someone not paying their part of the mortgage is concerning so the concerning thing about someone not paying their mortgage if you're both joined in a mortgage is quite scary but again it looks like there are things you can do and definitely like starting with the mortgage broker and seeing what you can afford there are loads of stages it seems like been listening to make your move the podcast here to make moving simple we hope you found this episode useful but as always everyone's situations are different so make sure to do your own research before making your move make your move is brought to you by really moving the price comparison site for moving home services if you have any experiences or questions you'd like to share or ask that might be put on a later episode please email us at podcast at reallymoving.com see you on the next episode